0: Dealer, I'm feeling it hit me. Welcome to The Grid. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible no limit hold'em hand. 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult as hands like ace king are removed from the grid whether you spend hours pouring over grids as you study poker love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash or just interested in absurd scavenger hunts we're gonna have some fun you got
1: the cards dealer i it hit me yeah i got swagger. they see me see me struttin'.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Grid. Today, I am very honored to have World Poker Hall of Famer Linda Johnson on The Grid. She's also a World Series of Poker bracelet winner. She was, in fact, the third woman in history to win a bracelet in an open field. Her accomplishments in the business of poker are so diverse, but for starters, She's a partner of Card Player Cruises, a founder of the World Poker Tour, and she also founded the charity Poker Gives and co-founded the Tournament Directors Association, aka the TDA. With all these boss, literally, accomplishments, it's easy to overlook Linda's original passion for the game itself that drove her to make the poker world better for all of us. And so today on the grid, she really helped me out by picking quite a tough hand to click off, Six do suited, and this was from a little bit of a throwback hand on the World Poker Tour where she was in the mix against Antonio S. Von diari Hey, Linda, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Oh, thanks, Jennifer. It's a pleasure to be with you today. So tell me about this
0: hand. This was on the World Poker Tour. Um, how long ago was it, and at what point in the tournament did it take place?
1: This was probably 10 or 12 years ago, and we were down to 45 players at the time. I think the starting field was four or 500. And I was at the table with Antonio and a lot of young men and this hand came up and it was pretty exciting. Which WPT was it?
0: And 45, um, you said you started with 500, so you recently burst the bubble or
1: something? Correct, yes. We had just uh, reached the bubble, I think. And it was in LA, but I'm not sure which casino. I just remember it being in LA. I love Los
0: Angeles. That's a great place to have a World Poker Tour event. So you were just in the money at the point of
1: this hand, right? Yeah, Okay. correct. Run down the action, please. Okay, so I was in the big blind, and the blinds were... 1500 3000 and Antonio was the co-chip leader with me the two of us had the most chips of anyone we had approximately 480 to 500000 and so he had been very active he was raising with a lot of hands lots of suited connectors huge range for raising because had been playing pretty tight of course as we everybody wanted to get into the money but he and I were doing well in chips. So he made it 6,000, which was double the big blind. And because we had so many chips, I decided to go ahead and call with the six deuce of diamonds. So I called 3,000 more and we were head up in the hand. And the flop came 10 of diamonds, four of hearts, deuce of hearts. So I flop bottom pair and I checked and he made a continuation bet of about $9,000. Uh, I wasn't uh, convinced that I didn't have the best hand with bottom pair. So it was a pretty easy call on the flop. There was one diamond, so possibility of backdoor flush, uh, backdoor straight draw, you know, lots of possibilities. So the turn came a king. It was a black king, which uh, meant I would not have a flush draw. And it could have been good for his hand. So I checked. He bet $27,000. I still, there was something about the hand that I just felt like I... I I could still have the best hand possibly. So I decided to call him. And when I made that call, I decided I was calling the river no matter what happened. And a black queen came on the river. So it's king, queen, ten, four, deuce. And I have bottom pair with deuces. I checked and Antonio bet $52,000. And I almost beat him in the pot because I'd already decided on the turn when I called that I was calling no matter what happened on the river. So he kind of knocked uh, the table, and I turned up my uh, six deuce. And apparently his hand was the three five of hearts. Now it got really, really quiet because they were all young kids. And here I called the bottom pair with all these uh, overcards, and and he was betting two thirds of the pot pretty much the whole way through. And my thinking on the hand was. I just thought that against me, he would not bet one pair on the river. So that would mean that if he bet, he probably had two pair or better. And it's hard to make two pair in Texas Hold'em, right? And so uh, I just thought, well, I'm going to call. It turns out he had the three five of hearts. Now, the interesting thing about the hand is if I had seen his hand on the flop, I would have folded because he had 21 outs to beat my hand. He could win with any ace, uh, makes him a straight, any ace, any six, makes a straight. A three or a five makes pairs that beat deuces and nine hearts, of course. So he had 21 outs and I was a really big dog, but uh that was my most memorable and fun hand. That sounds like an amazing
0: moment. So at the time it sounds like um Antonio was very courteous. He just tapped the table and said, like, nice hand. Was he surprised when you turn over six deuce?
1: I think he was pretty stunned, as was the rest of the young kids at the table. You know, I mean it's funny when you see an older person, especially a woman, you just don't think that they have any game at all and that they're going to be an extremely tight player who uh, maybe can't reason things out. But, you know, like I said, when I didn't like the king on the turn when he bet. But I decided then that if he did bet the river, I was going to call. He wasn't real happy with me. He didn't talk to me for about an hour. But, you know, it's, it's a tough tough hand that he tried to get through and I don't blame him I think he played it well I just think I played it well as well also.
0: Yeah definitely and so you say that the rest of the players at the table were totally stunned because they had this assumption that you wouldn't do that that you would be afraid or something
1: but you're very well known in the poker world right like I mean all these guys knew who you were right? I think at the time they did you know as time goes on I become less and less well known you know, people in my age bracket, of course, know me, but the younger kids, you know, Linda Johnson, who, you know, they, they haven't heard of me, but at the time I still had some uh, notoriety and they were shocked. Yeah. But you're also so well known for the business of poker. So they don't, they don't necessarily know how
0: you play. They know that you've been like super successful. And, you
1: know, uh, stereotypes, we're all guilty of stereotypes at the table. And even me, I I hate to say it, but when I see another woman at the table, unless she's really young, I kind of have the same stereotypes. Until it proves otherwise. But I think, well, they're probably not going to be real aggressive. I love it when I see women out there check raising, like, you know, playing an event with you this weekend. I thought, oh my God, she's three betting all the time. And I love that. I I thought, you know, I'm going to nickname you Jennifer Three Bet. (laughs) Oh, wow. I especially like to see that from women because it's not expected. You know, I mean, we are always taught to be kind of demure. And uh, so when you see a powerful, woman at the table that can hold their own with uh, the men, it's its uh, exciting I think. They are
0: brought up to be less aggressive, but then I think once women start playing poker, if they start really getting an education in it, they're taught, like, you should be more aggressive even because people are going to,
1: you know, think that
0: um, you always have it. Yeah. Yeah, it's very polarizing.
1: The successful women player have a lot of tricks in their toolbox and they are aggressive. and. Passive players just don't win tournaments. And so I think you learn early that you have to be a little bit more aggressive, a little bit more creative think outside of the box. Otherwise, you're not going to get things done at the table and you don't last that long.
0: Now, in this case, though, it's obviously impossible to go too far in that direction. It sounds like you really believe that Antonio would be um, bluffing with just a large portion of his range. And moreover, that he wasn't gonna be value betting very light.
1: I didn't think he would value bet light on the river. I, I, against me in particular, I thought he probably would not bet one pair on the river. Even Ace King? Possibly not. I think he might've just checked it down on the river. You never know.
0: Because there was the king-queen that could have got in there or other two combos that he might have been terrified by, uh, like the the queen-ten suited or just the queen-ten off that you defended the big with. And in this case, you were already pretty deep in the money and you just won this big pot. I mean, not deep in the money. You were already in the money with a very healthy stack and then you won this big pot. How did the rest of the tournament end up going for you?
1: Well, it was going really well. I, I actually ended up in 13th place. My final hand, which was also shown on... TV was kind of a sad one. I had uh, pocket jacks and the flop came jack small, small. And uh, I lost to Queen Jack who backdoored a flush. You know, there was, I think, one heart on the flop and then two more hearts came and he hit Queen Jack of hearts. So that was kind of an unfortunate beat because I was really thinking I was going to double up and go further than 13th place but he just had me out chipped and so that was my swan song for that tournament
0: yeah but still a nice finish although I feel like 13th is always a bit painful because you were so close to making that final table WBT which you've had a role in founding so that is certainly particularly significant so you ended up coming in 13th in this tournament this was the 10k LAPC the one that they still have Every year, is it the big $10,000 WPT? I don't remember.
1: I know it was in LA, but I don't remember the buy-in or anything. And, and another thing, let me let me just add to the hand, because you made the comment you didn't think he would bet ace-king for value. I think today, people definitely get more value on the river, but we're talking probably 10, 12 years ago, and I think um, people didn't get as much value back then.
0: Yeah, definitely. I, I agree with that. And even if he did bet that hand, um, there's still... You know, if he's opening wide, there's still so much trash that he could have if he's just, um, you know, betting almost regardless of
1: what comes out. I called because he had such a large range. And I was thinking, you know, if he's got a hand like uh, seven eight suited or eight nine suited, you know, then then uh, once he starts betting, he can't stop. And so I felt good about it. But I think the fact that I snap called the river because I'd already decided to, I think that's what stunned the players. And the, the one kid who yelled out, wow, it was pretty neat. Yeah, that is a
0: good feeling, isn't it? Very good feeling. I mean, I guess it's like a good hand also, because you don't have any hearts in your hand. I mean, maybe it'd be even better if you had like, like technically it'd be really good if you had like ace juice, because then, you know, he's less likely to have ace jack or ace king if he does value bet that. But yeah, it seems like a really funny
1: hand. I have to say, I kind of wish I was there. (laughs) I mean, I definitely could have been paying him off. But as it turned out, it was good for me. And And everybody has a hand they'll never forget. I actually think I wrote a column about it once. That was my most memorable hand ever.
0: Antonio, i played with him a couple of times and he's very intense at the table. And even if I was once playing him in like a lower stakes tournament, like just a random $1,000 tournament at the WSOP. But man, he was really taking it seriously. You can see he's the kind of player who, and this was obviously deep in the money um, in a WPT. So obviously he was taking it seriously. But I just played with him in like the early levels of a random WSOP. And he really was like, you know, trying to bring his A game. Uh Uh-huh. I'm not sure if that's always the way he is, but he's
1: intimidating. Very intimidating. He's as tough as they come. He will not let up. You know, I mean, sometimes you just have to make that tough call and, uh, you know, you close your eyes and call. But plus, he's one of the nice guys in poker. There's a lot of nice people. And he's, he's nice, and I, I really enjoy being around him. He's upbeat. Everything's fun. As you said, he's just a tough player.
0: Yeah, he's very charming. Now, it's interesting to me you say this is your most memorable hand. Do you mean no-limit hold'em? Because, of course, you, you have won a bracelet at the World Series of Poker. I couldn't help
1: but think that that might have the most memorable hand in it. Not the case. Well, obviously, the final hand when I won my bracelet was memorable. It was in Raz. But what I remember most was that I had so much respect for my opponent. I ended up making the, the very last hand was a six five, which is what's on my bracelet. In the old days, you got to put anything you wanted on the top of your bracelet. Now they're already um, pre inscribed and, and you can't do that anymore. So on my bracelet, it says six five four three ace because it was a Raz hand and, and that's in diamonds and it has my name. And that was definitely memorable. But I remember most from that hand was I didn't want to scream with excitement, because I had so much respect for my opponent, Peter Bronstein, and I just felt his pain. You know, when you're going heads up for a bracelet, and somebody has to lose, it's, uh, it's horrible for the one who loses, you know, second place, even though it's it's good money, it's not a bracelet. And so I remember thinking as I as I bet the river, and he called, I remember, and he was all in, I remember thinking, you know, don't, don't act too excited, because he's in pain here.
0: So in a way, your celebration was a bit muted, and even your joy, but I'm sure it came out yes, later. Yes, of
1: course. Yeah, I just felt for him.
0: That was back in 97. What was the experience of winning your bracelet back in those days? Like, was there a lot of press? Because you were the third woman ever to win an open field bracelet. Was there a lot of attention and cameras, or because it was pre-Boom, not as
1: much? Pre-Boom, not as much. However, for that particular event, they had uh, grandstands at all the events, and and there weren't that many people usually watching. But that one, it was standing room only. A lot of people they had gone out the night before. One of my friends and had hats made that said "Go Linda," and they had signs and and they had obviously passed them out to everyone there. So at the time, I was uh, uh, owner publisher of Card Player magazine, and that morning we were going to press, and I had a cover come in. In the old days, we used to have card rooms on the cover instead of people on the cover. And so I'd been waiting for this cover to come in. It had been due a week earlier. And this particular advertiser, Card Room, was really good at getting their stuff in and they kept delaying, delaying. And so the the cover came in that day. And I looked at it and I called the, the casino and I said, There's no way I'm putting this on the cover. It was a picture of a young woman who was wearing Daisy Dukes with her top real low and she had like a sander sanding instrument between her legs and the, the premise was you know this club this casino is under renovation you know and we're doing all these wonderful things so I called them up and I said I'm not putting this on the cover of Player magazine and they said well you have to we're your advertiser we're big advertisers full page this and that and I said you know what this is not Playboy uh this is Player. I said if it's not going to do me any good to put this on the cover because when it gets to Bellagio they'll just throw it out you know I mean this is Does this looks trashy. And so they said, well, call back at one o'clock. And so I called back at one o'clock and they had this battery of attorneys uh, online, just trying to shake me up and threaten me that they were going to stop advertising and everything. I said, well, you know, I hate to say no to advertisers, but I have to do what I think is right. And I'm not going to run your cover. And I didn't. And so I had to play at four o'clock that day. And I was really, really upset now because, you know, they were threatening to stop their advertising card player back in 97. We needed every ad we could get. And so I thought, well, I'm going to go down to the World Series and check out the area and kind of do a little meditation and try and get my mind off this problem that I had business wise. So I went down to to Binion's and I went to the final table area. And already there were just Tons of people waiting. And I saw these hats and these signs that said, go, Linda. And I just, all of a sudden, I I threw away my worries about the magazine. And I just focused on uh, winning the tournament that day. And I actually felt kind of sorry for my opponents because everybody there were fans. You know, they wanted to see a woman win a bracelet, I think. And uh, even Men Win, who was one of the people at the final table, he was wearing a hat that said, go, Linda, until I beat him in a pot took it off threw it down but (laughs) you know it was so exciting it's very emotional to this day when I talk about that win and then the headlines said second woman in history wins WSOP and I and I said no 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 I was the third and and I started doing some research and I found out that Vera Richmond who was the first woman never got her name listed as a winner because she was so detested by everyone in and Vera was kind of a mean and nasty woman, not kind of, she was mean and nasty. So I, I, I went to the heads of the World Series. I said, why isn't Vera's name in the record books? And, you know, the answer was because she was a bitch. And, a, and you know, she, she was. But I said, well, there's plenty of asshole men who have won bracelets in there and there. You have to put her in. And it, it took a little bit of campaigning, but she did finally get her name in the record book where it belongs because she was the first and I was the third, not the second.
0: That's an amazing story. And I did look up Vera. That was 1982. She was the first woman to win a bracelet in an open field. And interestingly, just totally coincidentally, um, Vera Menchik, who was by all accounts, not a bitch, but She was featured very heavily in my book, Chess Bitch, which was, you know, cheekily named in order to, you know, show that a lot of times women who are very aggressive and, you know, try to place their will in the world are called bitches where men wouldn't be. But Vera Menchik in chess was the first woman ever to compete at the highest levels with men. So that coincidence kind of popped out at me. So what do you mean when you say that she was a was she just like rude to the dealers, smoking at the table? Like what was
1: it that she, she did? She cussed. She had a mouth like a sailor. Uh huh. She had a lot of money and she didn't put up with any crap from the men. You know, back in those days, sometimes it was hard to be a woman at the poker player and she just didn't put up with it. And it's actually, you know, the Amarillo Slim is quoted as saying, if a woman ever wins the main event, I'll slit my throat. What he actually said was if Vera Richmond wins... I will cut my throat.
0: And the field sizes weren't that big back then, right? So No,
1: The chances of her
0: winning were like, you know, not that low, even if she was one of the only few women in the event. Back
1: then, there was um, probably, you know, 60, 70 people back in the 80s. There was 105 when I won my bracelet.
0: And Vera, you got a chance to play with her before, right? In the
1: same event that she won. You were in that event? No, I never played with Vera because she played sky high. Okay, Back in the 80s, I was, you know, just trying to make a living playing low limit poker. And all these people, not Vera, but, you know, a lot of women were my heroes. There were only only a few successful players back then. Terry King, Jackie Jean, and um, you know, I wanted to be just like them someday because they were my heroes. But Vera was not my hero. I don't really like nasty people. But from the standpoint that she didn't put up with with what guys tried to give you back then, I I did admire that part. The rest of it I I just don't like abuse at the table. Never have. So Vera, whatever happened to her? Nobody's heard anything. You know, after a few years, she just stopped coming and and everybody assumed she died. And I've never done the research to see what year she died or anything, but I guess she just passed away. She was elderly at the time, used a wheelchair. When she won her bracelet, I actually have a picture of, of her from the year she won it, but she looked to be probably... 65 or 70 back then.
0: I always have this image, when, especially when you you described her being nasty, I had this image of her like smoking at the table. Is that accurate? Oh, yes.
1: The smoke was really bad at the table. And uh, people, if they didn't like you, they would kind of aim at you when they exhaled and blow smoke in your face. And it was nasty back then. That was one of the things that I'm proud of is helping to get rid of the smoking at the table. And the poor dealers on their breaks, they would have to clean the ashtrays and stuff. And it was just yucky.
0: You've done so much for kind of the atmosphere at the tables. I heard um, on another podcast, actually on Card Player, that your cruises were the first uh, poker room not to have any smoking.
1: Yes, and, and it was funny because uh, we just started having no, no smoking policy. And this one guy came in and he was smoking a cigar even. And I said, I'm sorry, sir, but you're gonna have to put that cigar out. This is no smoking. And he said, yeah, yeah, okay. And and I turned around and and then I came back like a minute later and he's still smoking the cigar. And I went up to him again and I said, sir, it's no smoking, please put your cigar out. And um, he said, okay, I will. And and then I walked away and, and I looked back and he still was smoking. So I said to my partner, uh, business partner, Denny Axel, who owned Card Player with me, I said, Denny, I've told that guy twice to put out his cigar and he won't put it out. And so Denny comes over to the table and he says to him, put your cigar out. And the guy says, the next person that tells me to put my cigar out, we're going outside. And he says, Denny said to him, let's go. And of course, the guy then put his cigar out. He didn't want to go outside. Yeah, I mean,
0: going outside when you're in a cruise ship. Yeah. That sounds go a out about- on deck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So these days when people talk about abuse at the table, um, do you do you sympathize or do you think like, oh, my God, you don't know how
1: bad it was back in the day? It's so much better today. I mean, I back in the day, I would not have liked my mom to go into a card room. I just wouldn't have let her. But today, I think that most card rooms have some type of behavior policies and I don't see abuse like we used to see it. I think the younger players haven't been around it. And so, you know, it's kind of a thing where if, if you allow abuse to happen, then it will happen. And if you don't allow it, it won't happen. Like we were also on card player cruises. We, we did not let, we don't let people misbehave. And we have about 40% women on our cruises. And I think that's one of the reasons why. And Lupe Soto has a new policy, raise it up, like raise the level of fun at the table, and stop the abuse. And we we've, we've met with card room managers and trying to figure out how can we get more women into the game. And I think the number one way to do that is to stop abuse at the table. I remember once I was playing in L.A. years ago. I'm in the middle of a tournament, and there's UFC fighting on every channel all, on all the screens, and you know, and there's guys at my table watching it, saying "break his leg" and stuff like that. And I looked around, and there was only like maybe three women in the room. And I thought to myself, well, I wonder. You know, it's no wonder why there's not more women here. You know, who wants to be in this type of atmosphere unless you're making a living playing poker, you know? Like recreational players aren't going to be around that kind of stuff. I mean, definitely there is
0: still some abuse at the table, but um, it's gotten a lot better. I mean, even from when I've played poker, I see that maybe partly because of greater awareness of feminism among men, it seems like men are a little bit more likely to step in and therefore men are a little bit less likely to be rude. Right. That said, it's always a little hard to tell because I know more people in the poker world, so people might be less likely to be rude to you when you're well-known. Mm-hmm. So it, yeah, it's, it's always a little tricky.
1: Plus we we have a lot of progressive tournament directors, like people like Matt Savage, you know, they, they will not allow uh, abuse especially towards women. You know, I think they, they go out of their way to protect women and all floormen should have some type of sensitivity training. You know, it's just, it's hard. And sometimes when I'm reading on social media about something that happened to a woman in the card room and how, when people were allowed to be rude and intimidate her, I just think, did you call the floor? You know, it's important for women who are listening out there that if people are rude and, and I'm not saying that that poker rooms or churches, you know, like it doesn't bother me if someone says a cuss word unless it's directed at, at someone at the table, whether it be me or somebody else, you know, so you have to, you know, you can't be thin skinned to be a poker player. But at the same time, if somebody is really rude and abusive towards you, it's important whether you're a man or a woman to call the floor because that person needs to be put in his place or her place. I mean, I'm not just saying it's men who can be abusive. Women can do. And uh, they, that needs to be stopped and if we if we stop abuse i think we will grow the market for poker players what about when it's
0: not really rude or abusive so there's no real um justification for calling the floor but it's just annoying do you have any go to comebacks for people who are being annoying either to the dealers or to recreational players at the table well if
1: it's towards the dealer i will definitely stop it and sometimes i'll say hey, that's my mother, or that's my son, or, you know, whatever's appropriate, you know, don't talk to my son that way, or my brother, or, you know, whatever it is. But if it's a player at the table, you know, sometimes somebody will say something like, uh, uh, how could you make that call? Or how'd you win that pot? You only had one out. And I'll say something like, well, all you need is one out, you know, or, or if somebody says to me, how do you make that call? I just say, well, I've got a good job, you know, so I just try to diffuse it that way. I'm not saying you should call the floor every time somebody annoys you, but I'm saying when they target you and they keep picking and picking and poking the bear, then at some point you need to call the floor. Absolutely, yes, definitely. But sometimes like for the more in the weighing stuff, it's just like about
0: having a good personality and making like the good dominate the bad. It's uh, tough, but you you make this joke about... Um, I have a good job, but obviously there's some truth in that. In, in that you've been so successful in the business of poker. If you had to pinpoint it, what would you say your best business decision in poker ever was?
1: First of all, getting into poker was my best decision as a player back in the, in the 70s. It was difficult for women back then, and and I had a great job. I, I left a very secure job making fifty thousand dollars a year back uh, with the government in the post office back in 1980 when I moved Vegas. That was my first good business decision, but I think um, getting involved with Card Player Magazine, buying the magazine, uh, getting involved with the cruise business. When I sold the magazine to Barry Shulman, I really enjoyed the cruises more than the magazine part of it. So I kept that. And through Card Player Cruises, I've been able to cruise all over the world and meet so many wonderful people. And just have, I would say that I'm on, except for this year, I'm cruising at least four months a year. And that's been, enriching in every way if you had to do one thing differently what would you do wow that's a you know what I don't think I would do anything different I I have been very very lucky in my career when I got involved with party poker as a spokesperson Mike Sexton and I were the spokespeople for party poker and um, that turned out to be very lucrative and um, same thing when we started World Poker Tour, you know, I got all this stock and I thought, well, this isn't worth anything. The same thing I thought of party poker. And then years later, you know, you stick it in your drawer years later, hey, we're going public. And now it's worth something, you know, so I've had really good timing. I've been very, very lucky my whole life. I always think, you know, why am I so lucky? Why have I been so fortunate? And people say, well, you worked hard. And yeah, I have worked hard, but so have so many other people that don't get the breaks and the opportunities. So I, I just feel like, you know, I was lucky at birth. I was born to a wonderful woman who's the best mother, I, you know, I could even imagine. And throughout my life, I've had the uh, good decisions, I guess, that have led to me being able to have a nice life.
0: Just like poker, the combination of luck and skill. Is your mother still with us? Yes. She's
1: uh, going to be 93 next month and she's doing great. I think she'll, she'll live to be at least 100.
0: That's amazing. She was
1: not happy, though, when I became a poker player, you know, because I had this great job at the post office. I was first up in line to be postmaster for my region. And I was like a a level 17 back then, which was a lot of money. And I said, mom, I'm moving to Las Vegas to become a poker player. And she's like, what? You know, it kind of broke her heart, but she was always one to support me and, and, you know, all her children, anything we did was okay with her as long as it was legal. And so she did help me move up here, but she was worried, of course, that I would uh, be out on the streets with no job. And. And I always felt like, well, if it doesn't work out, you know, I'm smart enough that I can go and get another good job and I'll be okay. But from the moment I moved to Las Vegas in 1980, it was like a dream come true. And uh, I tell women today that, you know, if you want to be a poker player, just follow your dreams because you can do anything you want if you really apply yourself and, and put your mind to it. And back then, as I was saying, it was really hard. There were only a couple of professional women poker players, but I loved it. And, you know, every day when I would go out to play, I would like have to pinch myself because I was so happy that I got to do this for a living. And I've never looked back. I've never had any regrets. So you, when you say, what would you change? I wouldn't
0: change anything. Nothing, wow. And um, do you still have a soft spot in your heart for the, the um, U.S. Postal Service? Because, you know, they've been in the news, the struggles lately. Yes.
1: Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, everything I've done, looking back over my whole life, you know, when I leave something, I leave it behind. Like I left the postal service behind with all good memories. And and I enjoyed my years there. I enjoyed my years strictly playing poker. I enjoyed my years, you know, running the magazine. When I left the magazine, I thought, you know, is this going to be hard for me because magazine had been my life 24 seven. And when I walk away from something, then I'm done with it. And I just, go on to the next adventure.
0: So you said your mom was super supportive, ultimately, even though she was at first um, sad about the amazing job at the post office you had that you just left behind. As
1: the years went by, you know, and I, I started, you know, making good money and, and I would, Buy her a car, or I would take her on cruises. I probably took her on 25 cruises at least, you know. Well, then she, you know, changed her tune, and she thought, well, this isn't so bad. I bet, I bet. What about your dad? My dad was—he's the one who got me into poker. My dad was career military, so all of our lives we had to move every three years because he was in the air force and he would get stationed somewhere else. But he always played poker at night with his buddies to supplement his income because, you know, military people don't make that much money. Even though I never played poker until I was 21, my dad had always played poker. And I turned 21, I started playing blackjack. And he's the one who said, you need to play poker if you're going to gamble. Because, you know, if you're playing against other people, you have a better chance to win versus playing blackjack against the house. And so I taught myself how to play at the age of 21, which is unusual for professional poker players. Most of them grow up playing poker. And I just immediately had the knack for it. I always say, You know, people have talent somewhere and that was my talent. You know, I'm not a good singer and I'm not a creative and, you know, artistic or anything. But uh, poker just came naturally to me and I immediately fell in love with the game. And by the time I was 27, I moved to Las Vegas to play for a living. But my dad was very happy and supportive. Unfortunately, he died in 1988, eight years after I had moved to Vegas. So he never really got to see the success I had in poker, but he was very supportive.
0: That's sad that he didn't get to see that indeed, but um, yeah, I it sounds like it runs in your family a little bit then. When you say talent for poker, can you break down, you think, what that would be? Is it like a card sense? Is it a combination of being quick at math with reading people? Like, what do you think the components of that are? Uh,
1: I think it, it takes all that. It takes some mathematical skill. I think attitude and staying off tilt, you know, being able to take a beat. Is important. I think staying within your bankroll is important, you know, because a lot of people say, well, all poker players go broke at one time or another. I never went broke because I moved up the ranks very slowly. You know, I would make sure I was successful. I started out playing 2-4, Well, when you're playing 2-4 limit, by the way, back in 1980, when I moved to Vegas, you know, there was no no limit games except during the the time when we had the World Series of Poker. No limit didn't really start until after WPT aired where we started having live games. So back then I was playing two, four limit, which meant I had to play 80 hours a week to make a living. And then I, you know, after a year, I moved up to three, six, and then I would stay there for maybe a year or two and then, you know, move up to five, 10 and then move up to 10, 20. And, you know, so I, I never really risked my bankroll like a lot of players did.
0: Yeah, that's true. You don't hear about those stories as much because they're less dramatic. Like in America, especially, we love the redemption story, the rags to riches to rags to riches again. Yeah. But the steady upward crawl, it doesn't get as much attention, but it's important because otherwise people think it's always the other way, right? Yeah,
1: but that that's an, a very important skill for poker players. And a lot of the ones who do go broke, it's because they don't know how to manage their money or they have really bad leaks in other areas, which is part of not managing your money or they play too high. You know, I never felt like I had to play in the highest games. Uh, one in 200 is, uh, I'm comfortable there. Limit, not no limit, you know, and I have played two and 400. You know, I don't feel like I need to play sky high bet your life games. You know, it's not going to, change my life that much if I win but if I were to lose then it might affect my life
0: you know this has been a really weird year obviously um you know and horrible in many ways for the country and the world but um on the other hand um it's allowed a lot of people to reflect spend a lot of time at home and in your case you're normally a travelaholic you know it's part of your work it's part of your passion if you could snap your fingers right now and go anywhere in the world assuming it was safe to do so and it was a safe destination, where would you pick?
1: I want to go back to Africa. I've done a couple safaris, but I think those are my best vacations I've ever had. I also really love Thailand. So either Africa or Thailand would be my places
0: to go. What safaris were you in in Africa? Was it Tanzania or? Kenya.
1: You know, I had a bucket list of wanting to go to Cuba and Antarctica, and I was able to do both of those last year. And so you know, pretty much I've been to the places that I wanted to go to, I've been on all seven continents. But now I, I would do safaris or just spend time in Thailand at the beach.
0: Yeah, Kenya sounds amazing. I've never been there either. But I'm doing these um workshops where we're introducing Kenya girls who play chess to U.S. chess girls. Yeah. So, you know, every every week or so I see all these like... Um, Kenyan girls like calling in to Zoom from their their homes. Maybe one day I'll go there. Yeah, I
1: hope you do because it's it's beautiful there. I mean, you know, I love seeing the animals in the wild, but actually meeting some of the people, the local people, and talking to them, like I had a guide and I stayed at the village one day when everybody else went out hiking and, and he and I got to really talk. And he asked me such interesting questions. He said, you know, are all Americans rich? And we just had this great afternoon of exchanging information and and they walk everywhere oh my god they just you know a lot of people don't have cars there and you know so they can walk miles and miles and miles every day to get water and to you know herd take care of their herds and you know it's it's a great country
0: taking on a very more emotive direction your very good friend mike sexton who famously nicknamed you first lady of poker Sadly passed. Which I never liked. But it is your Twitter handle. It is your Twitter handle. Yes.
1: You can't hate it that much. But to me, it was kind of like the old lady of poker, you know?
0: (laughs) So if you could have one quality that Mike embodied kind of pass on to the poker community so that more and more people embodied it, what would it be? Just one,
1: I I guess his um, fun-loving nature. He always had fun at the table. He, you know, I talked during his celebration of life about, you know, he just didn't believe in being mean to the dealers. I have to give two qualities, you know, that and his generosity. Mike is one of the most generous people I've ever known. And whether he had money or didn't have money, he would pick up tabs and he helped everybody. And he, uh, you know, struggling poker players, he would loan them money and get them back in action. Not that I'm saying that's a good thing to do, but he was just, had such a generosity to him.
0: What was the most absurdly generous thing you ever saw him do? Well,
1: one time he rented a private jet for six of us to fly cross country for 24 hours to do a fundraiser for the PVA. And I think it was $25,000 that he spent. And uh, he wouldn't let any of us chip in. Uh, That was one. When he won the million dollars at the TOC, he donated half of it, $500,000, to five different charities. He gave them $100,000 each. So he he was very generous
0: that's absolutely incredible yeah and the the dealer the dealer conduct even before you created more protections for the dealers he always embodied that courtesy to the dealers yes
1: somebody asked him one time you know everybody throws the cards at the dealer why don't you throw the cards at the dealer and he said that the dealer's like the mailman i mean you know he delivers the mail and some days it's good and some days it's bad but can you imagine throwing the bills back at the mailman he said if you wouldn't do that then why would you throw the cards at the dealer
0: this was really a common thing people literally throwing the cards at the dealer oh
1: yeah yeah i mean we're talking a long time ago back in the 80s When I first moved to to Las Vegas, Uh, it was common. And, you know, it's still in some of the the games and some of the card rooms that tolerate it. They can still have to take a lot of abuse, which I don't like. I don't play for a living anymore. I play because I enjoy the game. I play online every day now. And when I was going to card rooms, it was because I wanted to go and have a good time. And so I've always been the defender of the dealer, you know, or even defender of players. I think that when people are happy and the atmosphere is nice, first of all, you have more fun, but also you make more money because people don't mind losing to you. If, if, if they know they're not going to get berated uh, when they put a bad beat on you, then, then they will try to draw out on you more often, which ultimately is a good thing for you. You know, when you're in the lead and they're chasing, you know, they will get there once in a while, but if they know that they're not going to get yelled at or scolded, then they'll do it more often.
0: So literally throwing cards at the dealer was something that used to happen before the poker boom. Yes. And what about women at the table? Like what's something that people would say to, to a woman at the table decades ago that would like never happen today?
1: I have some horrible stories that I, I, don't, I don't even want to repeat of things people have called me at the table and said to me and it, just so rude. and And, you know, to female dealers as well. I developed a thick skin early on, and I didn't let it bother me. And um, I think that's a good thing. Or if you you can give them a comeback, you know, a lot of people who try to abuse other people are their wimps themselves. And if you call them on it, they'll back off. I didn't take it, I would throw it right back at them. And then they leave you alone after that. Same thing with the dealers, I think the dealers that defend themselves do a lot better than the ones that don't. The good thing is today, you just it doesn't happen that often, you know, it's just, So much nicer in the card rooms today and not just today, but for years, you know, I'd I'd say this century has been good for poker and people are that um, they will get more players if they maintain a happy atmosphere. Because, you know, your recreational players, they want to have fun. And if it's not a fun atmosphere, they're just not going to play. Yeah.
0: And also, I feel like there's like a stigma now to being rude towards dealers because it shows that you're like a player who is, you know, super um luck oriented and is trying to get lucky and I think people even if they do have aggression they might kind of keep it in line because they understand that it makes them not only look like a jerk or an asshole as you famously put it um, it also makes them look dumb if people are particularly you know afraid of looking dumb at a poker table that's a real deterrent yeah I've noticed a couple times in this conversation that you've talked about kind of like empathy at the table, whether it's for the dealers or for your opponent um, when you won your bracelet in 1997. Um, How does empathy help you and hurt you in poker? Because obviously it can be very helpful for figuring out what people have, but does it ever like make you take your foot off the gas?
1: No, it doesn't. You know, I I feel like if you respect poker, you're always going to play your hardest and try to win. When I play with older men who are maybe a little bit feeble, I just have this uh, empathy for them, but I still try to beat them. And, um, and I figure it's better for them to lose to me who will not make them feel like an idiot, you know, who's going to sympathize with them and, and, you know, be their friend. It's better for them to lose to me than to lose. They're going to lose anyway, uh, but it's better to lose to somebody like me who who isn't going to give them a hard time than to lose to somebody who's going to beat them and then laugh at them. It can be hard, but I, I play hard against everyone I play hard against friends Uh, my best friend Jan Fisher I love to check raise her I have check raised my mother Uh, I I got her to play one time in a charity event and my mom is like mother Teresa she hated the fact that you know anybody takes money from anybody else you know but uh, I check raised her and you know I I just feel like it's my job at the table Uh, I have three goals every time I play one is to have fun One is to win money, and one is to make sure my opponents have fun. Did a friend ever get upset at you for check-raising them? Oh, yeah. I mean, some people do take it personally, but, um, you know, that's not my problem. That's their problem.
0: Yeah, and then you can explain it to them afterwards. I mean, I love that because I feel like it's also being your position in the poker world. The integrity of the game really presupposes that you play the same against friends and family as you do against everyone else. Like, and that's something that gets lost. And like, I, sometimes you have conversations with people and they're like, no, it's kind of normal. It's impossible to play exactly the same against friends and family. And you realize that this is not always a commonly accepted truth in the poker world, but as people make more and more friends, it's like really, really dangerous. The entire integrity of the game yeah. falters if you don't have the attitude that
1: you have. Yeah, it's about respecting the game. And it's, and it's my job, you know, when I go there, I am going there to win money and to have fun. And you can do both. So when you check raised your mom, what, what happened after that? Did she fold? (laughs) She folded. Yeah. (laughs) She just,
0: okay. And and you didn't have it. You were bluffing? No, I
1: think I had it. But, uh, you know, my mom is not a poker player and she really didn't know what she was doing too much. So, you know, I just said, mom, if you like, like something that you have just bet and, uh, So she bet, and I checked, raised her, and she said, Oh, you must have something really good. Yeah, maybe, maybe not. And she folded.
0: Nice, nice. I remember um, somebody who I was very good friends with, and I know is a mutual friend of yours too, Rachel Kranz. She was such a great aggressive player. She died too young um, a few years ago. She was a great writer, also and um we talked poker all the time and like the first time i played with her three bet she check raised me three bet. Uh she was so serious about poker she wasn't gonna even tell me what she had later no i loved her all the more for it i can't say i was surprised it was tough and you're tough
1: you know i've played a couple charity events live with you and i've i've always liked your aggression at the table and and then getting to play with you last weekend you know like i said i Nicknamed you three bad Jennifer.
0: Oh, thank you. That was in the uh, the Biden Harris fundraiser tournament that we both played in that Lena Evans organized. That was a really good time. It's so stressful right now, so it's nice to kind of connect with people over a game. And yeah, what you know, I remember that charity tournament I played with you. It was one that Maria Ho organized um, and in Hollywood, yeah, Chad Brown Memorial. And yes. so it was for cancer research, I believe. And whenever I play in a rebuy, charity tournament especially at the time because this was before I had my son I would just always like try to keep rebuying and you know because I figured okay this is my charitable donation but I also get to play hands that I wouldn't normally play because usually I'm I'm aggressive but I also have a kind of like narrow opening ranges maybe aggressive three bet ranges but I don't open that much like I'm not playing like king aid offsuit from the hijack that's just like not a thing I'm doing but suddenly I'm in a charity tournament and the handcuffs come off right I can do whatever I want so it's very freeing and it's fun it is
1: fun yeah and and the community our community is extremely generous I mean we have raised so much money for different charities you know when people talk bad about poker players it makes me upset because I don't think there's any group that has raised more money from charity and poker players any recreational group or or just but no group has raised more i mean we're talking millions and millions and millions of dollars for different charities why do you think that is um i think i think that we need to give back i think people have a need to give back and you know that's the one one reason i got into the business side of of poker was because i started saying you know i don't want to go every single day and just take money from people you know i want to be able to provide uh, things like the magazine and the cruises and stuff like that that are fun for everyone. And I I think people just want to give back. And that's why we have so many charity events.
0: And you have your own organization, Poker Gives,
1: which helps
0: poker players give to charities. Can you explain what that means?
1: Poker Gives, we we support a lot of different programs and different charities, a lot of military things, you know, like, um, we have an Air Force base near us. And if somebody, you know, if they call up, poker gives and say we have a family that needs a wheelchair we'll, we'll make it available um, we do a lot of other programs like every monday night going and feeding hungry people and there's a lot of different components of poker gives but basically every dollar that comes in goes out which i don't think too many charities can say nobody gets paid it's a total volunteer organization uh, so whether you donate cash or you donate supplies they will be given out
0: that's fantastic you know it's really amazing all the things you're doing in poker the energy that you maintain to do so many different projects and i'm really grateful that you came on the grid to talk to me about six deuce suited as it would not be that easy of a hand to click off certainly not from a legend against another legend
1: thank you thank you and you're such a good interviewer i've really enjoyed it. it feels like we're sitting at home talking just chatting
0: I know, and I can't wait till we actually can do that. Usually I see you every year in Vegas. I'm not sure if you remember this, but before I became you know, really embedded in the poker world, I just came to Vegas once a year to play the World Series of Poker Ladies event. And I went deep one year and I was at a table with you and you like almost, I, I actually had trouble making friends in poker. In the beginning, which some people think it's funny because now I, um, you know, I know a lot of people. <laughs> and uh, you actually invited me to a cruise. Like one of the first things you you said it said was you gave me your card and you were like, um, "You should come to a cruise sometime." And I think it was because you liked the way that I was playing and talking to people at the table. But I, I always remember as you as one of the first people who was really friendly to me,
1: even though I was totally unknown, not a part of the world. I do try to welcome everybody, especially women. You know, I just want more women to play poker. And so, you know, it it can be an intimidating atmosphere sometimes. And so just having someone give you a smile, I think, you know, can help. Absolutely. I think it was also, I was three betting a lot. So you were like, yeah, maybe
0: she's going to stick around in this game for a while. (laughs) 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 Get her in our cruise. And uh, again, um, it is. Linda Johnson. She might not love the name, but she is at First Lady Poker on Twitter where we can follow all of your happenings. Anywhere else that we should follow you, poker gives obviously.
1: PokerGives.org. Yeah. I am on Facebook. Uh, my email address if you anybody needs to get in touch, cardplayercruise at AOL.com. And of course, hope you all come cruise with us. They are so much fun and and we do have no abuse card rooms. You'll never see as much fun as people have, you know, on a cruise playing poker.
0: I can't wait till things open back up and we can all go cruising and flying all over the world again. But till then, talking on Zoom with such a legend, World Poker Hall of Famer, Bracet winner, and real all around first lady boss of poker, Linda <laughs> Johnson. <laughs> Thanks so much.
1: Six-deuce suited. Thank you, Jennifer. Thanks
0: for listening to the Please subscribe, review, and tell your friends about your favorite episode. If you want to support my projects, consider a tax-deductible donation to US Chess Women. We are working to even the mind sports playing field by bringing more women and girls into chess. Till next time as we count down 169 hands.
1: No one ever busts. They say I'm lucky. Oh no, no need to bluff. Cheap tricks up my sleeve Yeah, I got talent